Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks, and welcome back to my favorite time of the week. And I'm delighted to have David Buxton. David is uh, CEO of a tech company, a tech founder, uh, started about eight years ago, and the organization is called Arachnus. Uh, David, welcome to the series. Great to have you on. Thank you very much. And uh, tell us perhaps about, about the current role, what Arachnus does, um, perhaps even why you founded it. Why did you start it? Um, and then we'll go into after that a little bit about your life journey. But, you know, tell us about Arachnus. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm the CEO and founder of Arachnus. Um, I actually started it basically at my kitchen table eight years ago um, because I wanted to learn how to program and uh, I needed a project to get started with. And it sort of metastasized into a real company with, uh, you know, dozens of employees and customers all over the world. So um, that was an unplanned um, and unexpected, but very happy um, accident. Um, what we do is we make it frictionless for banks to onboard new customers. Um, when I was, I, I got into this because I was working at a company called Control Risks a decade ago, mm. helping corporations, banks, etc., navigate the complexities of doing business mainly in Russia and the former Soviet Union. And I saw a lot of organizations really struggling to make sense of the risks that were posed by their Russian and you know other former Soviet counterparties, despite the fact that tons of information, tons of business information was actually in fact available electronically even back then. But because they weren't widely distributed, these pieces of information, and our customers didn't know about them, they weren't able to incorporate them in their risk models, and they were incurring huge costs and also massive risks in terms of bribery, corruption, money laundering, etc. And so I started Arachnus to make it really easy for everyone that needs to know risk-relevant data to be able to get whatever they need anywhere in the world. Um, and that has been a mission which has um, taken us into some of the world's finan largest financial institutions, um, biggest corporations, and um, investigative firms. Yeah, and, and people listening, um, how would you describe it in, in simple terms? So it's, it's frictionless onboarding, and it's reducing the risk uh, to their businesses um, by the way you set things up. But who would be listening in, and they go, oh, that's what I need. I mean, who are your kind of audience that you'd, you'd be? Yeah, so, I mean, so increase an increasingly large um, number of firms when they are bringing on new customers, right? Whether they be law firms, accountancies, um, it started really with financial sector and banks, but, you know, insurance companies and other sort of non-bank financial sector participants, you know, hedge funds, etc. They have both a regulatory obligation to gather certain types of information about their customers, which is why you and I, when we open a bank account, have to either take a selfie or send a photo of our passport, or even some cases go into the bank branch with you know some pieces of paper and identification and all sorts of things, right? So that's called KYC, know your customer, right? Um, but banks also have an obligation to prevent 
them being the access points to the financial system for people who want to do bad things with you know that system you know move money around that comes from selling drugs or from human trafficking or from tax evasion or whatever it is and so in and that's called anti-money laundering there's a sort of broad brush thing right aml there's also other types of financial crime like fraud right just nicking money basically so what we do is we provide the information that's necessary for banks to discharge their KYC obligations really, really quickly and to prevent them from having to ask customers for tons and tons of annoying documentation, you know, a certified copy of this and, you know, dig out the, you know, moth-eaten deeds to this property or whatever it is, right? So being able to validate information um, or, in fact, gather information that's necessary for them to, to discharge their regulatory obligations um, seamlessly and frictionlessly, right? And then we also allow them to gather other risk indicators, other types of information. So for example, in some contexts, what you're doing is you're reading the media about a company or a person in order to understand what the risk that they pose, uh, you know, from a money laundering point of view might be, mm -hmm. or you might be looking at trade data in order to understand whether or not a company is doing business with North Korea or Iran or Syria or, or something like that. Or you might be trying to look at classified ads for fentanyl in China to understand whether or not a company is actually importing this stuff to the United States or the UK. So these are all the types of risks that banks have been kind of deputized by governments worldwide to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, the you know what actually happened historically was that you know in the wake of 2001, 9/11, but also. Um, to an even greater extent in the wake of the financial crisis, the settlement that the regulators and governments came up with was basically that banks had to build essentially a parallel intelligence apparatus, right, in exchange for, you know, undying government love, so to speak, you know, the sort of support to the tune of hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, right, from governments all over the world. And you know, that's, that's actually ended up being a, a fairly um, crazy endeavor. You know, we have some customers who have thousands of analysts who all they do all day is um you know onboarding or anti-money laundering um risk investigation and detection uh, and if you compare that to the size of for example the secret intelligence service like britain's foreign intelligence service you know some individual banks have organizations that are of comparable size to that national intelligence agency uh which is you know a fairly kind of um you know, strange unintended consequence. But I think that also just speaks to the fact that access to the financial system is just absolutely crucial um, for, you know, anyone who's trying to, you know, wrongdo, as it were, yeah, yeah. Uh, in any situation. So controlling that is just incredibly important. So we, we provide, we provide um, software to help keep that safe, I guess. Brilliant uh, and, and fascinating. And it's interesting you mentioned your earlier days in Control Risk, where we had the former CEO on this podcast. And also a lovely guy, Johnny Gray, uh, who worked in Controllers for some years, and, and I knew him from the Army Staff College. But Johnny's gone on, and he's now the CEO of the Tennis Integrity Unit. And, and a bit like what you're trying to do, he's trying to make things safe and risk-free in tennis, where there's problems with drugs, and uh, I suppose there's also anti-money laundering, and... Uh, and also people fixing matches. So, well, I was going to say the match fixing thing is the is the single biggest thing I think. Yeah, probably, yeah. So perhaps you ought to reach out to him. Maybe you've got a system that he could use in in uh, in the tennis world. Um, so let's let's go on to early life. Um, I mean, you mentioned Russia. Um, I would love you to tell that story about when you were eighteen in Russia and and what you learned from perhaps it was a, a dark moment, a difficult moment, 
uh, and then we can jump earlier to school and things like that. But tell us the Russian story, because I thought it was really interesting. Oh, um, well, yeah, so Russia for me, I, I went when I was, um, I guess, about 18. Um, I just left school, so sort of gap year, and um, I went to study Russian. Um, and I guess I was planning to study Russian at university. I think the theory was that it was the uh, strangest place to go where I wouldn't, from a kind of just physical perspective, I'm a six foot four white guy, um, from a physical perspective, I wouldn't, you know, be a fish out of water as I walk down the street. Um, but Russia, for those of you who have been there, is and was hugely culturally distinctive um, and is you know, absolutely fascinating mixture of different sort of uh, social and cultural influences from all across the kind of Eurasian landmass, right? Um, we think of it as a European country, but that's only sort of partially true, I think it's fair to say. Um, and yeah, I, I was talking about this in the context of, you know, kind of not that many bad things have ever happened to me, I guess, but paradox, you know, Russia is both a place where I think bad things do happen to one with reasonable <laughs> frequency. Certainly had more run-ins with the police there than I ever had in any other country. Um, but also I think it's somewhere that reminds you very frequently of the kindness of strangers and the, um, you know, the fundamental humanity and the, uh, of, of um, people all over the world. And so you know, the specific story we were talking about is um, I, was, I was in St. Petersburg in the winter. Um, it was very, very cold. It was uh, very miserable because you get about, uh, in, in, it's so far north that you get about five hours of sunlight a day if you're lucky kind of thing, or of gray a day, and then it's just black. Um, and so I went on a day trip or an overnight trip to a place called Novgorod, which is Vyeliki Novgorod, for those of you. There's a, a Nizhny Novgorod as well, which is different. Um, also live there. Um, but Vyeliki Novgorod is one of the sort of historical centers of um, Rus, as it was, sort of the pre-Russian, the proto-Russian state, and dates back to, I think, the ninth century, although someone will probably call me out on that. Was it, and, the, was it the Vikings who went and founded Rus? Um, I don't think so. I'm actually not an expert on the specific the specifics of it. Um, but uh, the Rus was a name that was applied by the Scandinavians, I think, based on the fact that the people there had red hair, right? So I think that's where that word comes from, right? That's my recollection. Although you know, actually, the ethnography of this isn't my specialty, so apologies if I'm speaking out of a different orifice. But um, I, um, you know, so I was in this place and I basically had forgotten my passport and I took the last train to, to Novgorod and I got there and no hotels would let me check in because I had, you know, didn't have a passport and it was very, very bureaucratic at the time, probably still is, but probably a little bit more sane. I didn't have a mobile, I didn't know who to call, I was completely stuck in this place. Snow was falling, you know, snow upon snow. I was trying to sit in a cafe, I was sitting in a cafe trying to stay warm, you know, sort of preparing for a long night wandering the streets and um you know reading a book trying to improve my russian and the cafe owner sort of came over to kick me out and asked why you know what i was doing basically and i sort of explained to her the situation and she wandered off and then 10 minutes later she came back and she said actually my, my daughter's away and i phoned my husband and he says that you can come and you can stay in her bed tonight and um uh I just remember this like overwhelming sense of gratitude. It was a really, it was a really profound experience for me. Um, and it reminded me, I think more than anything that, um, you know, probably a lesson that I haven't drawn on enough over my professional career. And certainly I think at the time I hadn't, which was, you know, sometimes you just have to ask for help more. 
and you have to you have to do so in a way which you know makes you vulnerable um and that was something i've, I've drawn a lot i think yeah and, and do you reckon that uh your team i think it's about 50 to 60 in arachnus uh the, the different people colleagues working with you do you reckon they'd recognize that in you that you you have a habit of trying to do it all yourself and you should actually involve them more i think it's I think it's like the single biggest problem that I have as both a leader and as an operator. Um, and I think it's driven by a couple of things. I think um, the first is that, as I said, I started the company as kind of an accident because I wanted to understand something. And I think that, you know, I'm not a professional manager. I'm someone who's very curious about the kind of details and the nitty gritty of how, um, how things work, right? And sometimes I can dive down into that detail in a way that's actually, you know, interesting for me personally, but maybe counterproductive in terms of like driving ownership and, you know, um, really kind of making other people feel that it's their responsibility. Yeah, um, it's their like, area of expertise. So I think that's something I, I do pretty regularly. And it's something I have to like kind of whack myself on the hand, you know, about. Um, working work progress, working. So take us back to right at the beginning of your life, you know, upbringing, your parents, school, that kind of stuff. Give us a flavor of how that shaped the, the inspiring leader you are today. Um, yeah, so I, I had a reasonably, I had a both quite unusual and quite conventional upbringing, I think. I was born in Japan. My mum was a journalist out there um, with The Economist and my dad was um, a lawyer, shipping lawyer. And so I was, I was born in the kind of 80s in Japan, which in retrospect, I think was a time of sort of peak japanomania or japanophobia depending on who you talk to and i think that was uh, it didn't have that much of an impact on me directly although actually to this day my idea of comfort food is like miso soup and oyakodonbori which is like kind of rice with you know egg and chicken um so that's what i have as sort of my chicken soup equipment because my mum's cooking basically my mum learned to cook there so that's what we ate as kids um <clears throat> but i think after moving to america and then canada that subsequently, I think, always gave us a sense that our personal horizons were not limited necessarily to um, doing exactly the same thing as our parents did. Yeah. And also that we should aspire or that we might aspire to do something that had an international component to it. And in fact, all of us have ended up, you know, to varying degrees doing sort of international stuff. My brother's a photographer um, and spends a lot of his time on the road, or at least did pre-COVID on the road, uh, you know, walking with elephants across Botswana or trekking uh, through the mountains of Iran uh, or, you know, going to the Faroe Islands or whatever to take beautiful photos of, you know, ice. And my sister uh, works for the FCO and she's out in Addis Ababa at the moment. So wow. we all have like sort of reasonably, I think it drove a kind of reasonably international outlook. Um, yeah. We all speak multiple languages, etc. So that was interesting. We went to a, we all went to a relatively unusual school, King's College Choir School in Cambridge, which is this sort of Henry the supply school for the choristers at King's College Chapel. And so it exposes you to these nine-year-olds who are professional musicians, which is pretty unusual yeah. in the world. Uh, you know, normally we think of child labour as a bad thing, but it's kind of the um, these these sort of real professional road warriors right they go on tour for two months every summer etc um before puberty right once they hit puberty ironically they can't sing anymore uh because their voices break so that was very interesting because it really reminded it or it showed us all at a very good very early age that there were things in life that probably we just weren't going to be good at no matter how hard we tried and i think that actually we didn't find that depressing we found that 
liberating because it meant that we could focus on the things that we were going to be good at. But, but it, just staying with that for a moment, you know, it's always interesting who we compare. So many of us are competitive and comparative. And of course, you were with this tiny top 0.001% of the most talented people in the world at that age of that uh, singing or whatever it might be. And so it would, even if you were quite good, you weren't anything like them. So it would make you feel that you were not as good. I don't take away from the fact that we learn about our different talents, but I think that is very interesting. And you and I shared when I was very cocky in the army and had, had outstanding reports, but was chosen to be an instructor at the military academy, one of the best in the world for leadership development. And I thought I was God's gift. And actually I got an average report. Compared to them, I was just average. I was pretty good leader and officer, but they were really exceptional. And you clearly at an early age of what, nine or whatever, were finding what you were good at, but also that there were some people who were exceptional virtuosos at, at, uh, at certain things. What's your thoughts? Well, I think in a way, it's just inspiring to be around people who genuinely are amazing and are recognized for that. And um, I think in terms of music, we, in a way, it's an easy place to say, actually, I don't want that because there, because of the level of professionalism, it's not just about being great, you know, it's about it being a job, right? Yeah. And so it's pretty easy for you to say, like, actually, even if I was good enough, like, it's not obvious that I would necessarily want that for myself. Um, so I... I actually think with the with the music thing, it was just great to be around people who were who were brilliant at something because it really reminded you that like excellence is something which you can meet in the street. You know, it's not something that is unattainable or is is impossible for you to relate to. It have just you, have you seen, that have you seen these people now, and what have you kept in touch with some of these stars? Have they gone on to become world famous, or perhaps they've? I would say that. Well, I would say that I don't think any of them are world famous in their own right, but I think definitely some of them are world-class performers in a professional context uh you know and certainly you know many of them went on to be choral scholars at king's years later right um which is a you know also it's the sort of as it were the senior it's both men and boys I don't know if you know how the choir works they've got choral scholars from the college right and they've also got choristers from the school yeah. um and they sing together right that's the kind of the, the... i sang i sang as a chorister in the minster Oh, right. Okay. St. Peter's School, York, and, and I sang in York. That's a very, so it's a very similar setup, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. You know. I wasn't in the choral school, but the school was nearby and we went there. But then again, like, like you described, my voice broke and I was sacked uh, yeah. <laughs> unceremoniously by the choir master. Yeah. It's um, not good news, but, but actually it was probably a good thing. Uh, I, I didn't realize that, but that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you can definitely empathize, I'm, I'm sure. I can, I can relate to that. Okay. And so amazing school. Um, and, and you realise that there were exceptionally talented people and that wasn't your talent, your element. And what you and I were talking about Sir Ken Robinson and his book, the or, or his audio book, The Element, and he sadly passed this year. But but it's worth us looking at what is your element? And, and when you found out what your element was, what was it? What was it you were finding you were good at? Certainly academics uh, has been a strength of yours, hasn't it? Yeah, I think, so I think actually, um, and this is a bit of a cop-out, but I think, my real skill and it's very useful as a entrepreneur especially at the early stages but i think it actually can be a little bit destructive um for later stages is i can become probably 80 percent as good as 
you know, a very good person at most things in 20% of the time that it would take most people to get to that level of skill. And I think that is a fantastic, that adaptability, that kind of jack of all trades talent is fantastically useful in very many situations. And it is also not fantastically, it's something you almost have to suppress, I think, as your organization starts to, to grow and scale, because actually being 80% as good isn't actually good enough. Um, but also, you, you know, you're, if you're focusing on doing that, you're not focusing on really like maximizing your sort of, as it were, true calling. Yeah, um, staying with that for a moment, uh, you were talking about, you know, you, you've got a great team around you in Arachnis. And one of the other CEOs on the series was saying that you have to, you have to hire the best you can afford of talent. So their metaphor is hard when you're six foot four, but you've got to metaphorically get people who are two inches taller than you, mm. in a specialist area, because you cannot be doing it all. Otherwise you won't be strategically thinking on the balcony and you're paid as CEO to think not to be doing every job yourself. So, so what about the, uh, what is it you appreciate about the talent that you've managed to get around you in Arachnis? It's a really good question. I think that what I've, um, what I've managed to, the, the team I've managed to assemble over the years, and there've been several iterations of this, and like I, I've learned a huge amount from our failures, but I'm deeply disappointed that we have, you know, not had every single hire be 100% successful. Um, I think that the things that fundamentally make someone really successful at Arachnus are that they are really hardworking and that they're really smart. And those are things that I think have a lot to do with my relationships and the way that the things that I value personally in leaders. Um, in terms of the specifics of what people do, I think I'm really, really grateful for the, the discipline and the focus that my senior leadership team brings to, the, to their roles and the fact that they, they help me like uh, keep them within their, I don't wanna say silos because I think that's not quite the right, you know, it's not the sort of au fait um, way of thinking about it, but they, help me keep them focused on their priorities rather than um, letting it all get tangled up in a big sort of ball of string, right? And so in technology, what that means is making sure that we have architecture that scales, even if that comes at the price of not satisfying every single thing that a customer wants, because ultimately they're, you know, we're focusing on the kind of the longer term prize, not the, uh, not just the next deal. And that's been a difficult thing to learn because I think that, you know, I'm, we, we want to keep people happy. We want to make our customers happy, but sometimes, in order to make, as it were, the, to create the greatest utility, so to speak, you know, in a kind of um, uh, utilitarian sense, you've got to actually deliberately minim You know, you've got to deliberately keep control of the kind of core of what you do, yeah. rather than just doing everything that each individual customer asks you to. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that's really, really important for, for scaling an organization once you get past your first kind of your first couple of customers. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's at a fascinating stage you're at as an entrepreneur and the different stages that you're developing and eight years in, it, it's probably for some entrepreneur CEOs, tech company CEOs that I know, that's what they're finding is the hardest bit as you evolve. And also, as we'll come on to later, you're in the middle of COVID-19 and Brexit. So it's interesting times. Keeping yourself as CEO with some good habits, uh, which often sometimes we, we, we let them slip because particularly at CEO is so busy or many leaders are so busy. Healthy, wealthy and wise. What would be your tips to people listening about how you've, uh, you've kept yourself healthy 
bit of advice on money and and a, a, a wisdom tip? What would it be? Well, I I think I probably sound very conventional, but um, my biggest tip for health is actually just get yourself a, a Strava app or whatever and a running watch and like set yourself a, a mileage target basically and, and try and think about how to actually achieve that. I would say I miss most months, but I'm trying to do 100 miles a month at the moment. And that's good. That's a long way. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it feels like it should be easier to break out the time. But I think that actually having a target makes me think like, OK, I need a bit more time on Tuesday. You know, it makes me schedule stuff a bit. Well, that's that's um, I mean, that's 100 miles. That's like five days of running 20 miles a day. Uh, yeah, but in a month, it's not. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's in a month. Uh, I, was, I was thinking it in a week. Yes. Yeah, so no, no, no. A week would be a week would definitely yeah. be too much. That would be, be like marathon. Like 400 miles a month would, would be that would be tough. Um, I, I, I have one person on my team who is regularly logging, you know, 25K every two days or something. And that's pretty impressive. But yeah, I'm not not that level. No. Um, okay. So I, what about uh, money? I think the main thing that people probably get wrong is that they they just like have an avoidant tendency when they think about their cash flow position and so the thing that i found really useful is just like lobbing that into some sort of app so i use one called buxfer b-u-x-f-e-r which just helps me and my wife um have a sort of place for our shared finances and actually a safe-ish space for us to discuss you know what's going on with money um i think that money in itself isn't really important but making sure you don't have fights about money is really really important um and so you know it pr provides a framework for budgeting and for kind of monitoring your finances um and then I, th I guess wise you know it's so trite these days and it's so incredibly fashionable but i found sam harris's waking up app for meditation really powerful i think that um just trying to um trying to focus on the the difference between you know one's kind of conscious self as it were as the perceiver of thoughts and um you know the perceiver of sensation and so on i think is really powerful when it comes to disassociating a little bit when you have good news or bad news um you know being really able to sort of control how you think about that and slip into a more sort of self-reflective mood instantly that really really helps you know I, I, i'm not like a transcendental meditation person but i think just being more aware of you know emotions as things that kind of happen around you they sort of happen to you and you know but you the perceiver is separate from the thing perceived i think that's a I, i'm not sure sam would necessarily agree that that's what he's trying to teach people but um that's been really helpful for me and i i would like to meditate more and i but you know even just being able to spend two or three minutes is really powerful yeah i i'm a big fan myself so i use uh, headspace and i use calm Hmm. And uh, I tend to to do my meditation just before I go to sleep, just before I go to sleep. Uh, I know it's not supposed to be something to send you to sleep, sleep yeah. Um, but also, I find it, it's it's really helpful, uh, particularly to manage your emotions. And the other thing which we talked about, you and I, is stoicism, and and you know controlling the controllables. And the only thing that you, David Buxton, can control is your thoughts and your own actions. You can't control anybody else. You can influence them, but you can't control them. And I think as CEO of an entrepreneurial tech company, when you began by doing it all yourself, but then you start bringing other people in, letting them get on with their own areas um, and holding them to account for that and encouraging them, that's quite hard for people to make that transition. What do you think? I mean, yes, <laughs> I would definitely agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very useful, healthy, wealthy, wise. Then what about um, 
what in your opinion makes a good inspiring leader and a good inspiring team what, what's been your thoughts and experience um so i'm not sure i would necessarily say that i am a good inspiring leader i think that um you know and that leads me on to one of the things which i think is a degree of uh ability self-examination maybe i think maybe i'm too self-critical but i think that people who are totally unintrospective um are you know it's very difficult to draw long-term inspiration from them you know they just come across as deranged after a while right they can kind of come across as inspiring for a while but you know they they're the people who jump over the top of the trench and get shot straight away basically right you know um, the, unexamined, the unexamined life i think is what they would say yeah. <laughs> yeah. um so i think i think um you know i think confidence you know quiet confidence for me is what i try to um give across so i think i'm an underreactor, which helps with that you know neither do i get really excited when things go well nor do i get really depressed when things go badly mm. um i think vulnerability so helping people understand the things that are driving you and being sort of honest about like what the um you know what the context is that you are dealing with challenges right um and i think the final thing is really um asking questions and just really kind of wrecking, you know, being able to be confident enough to actually truly ask questions um, and not be sure about things rather than feeling that you have to have an answer for everything. Yeah. And one of the great questions we were coming up with the other day, two, which are great life hacks. The first one is um, when someone says they can't do something, uh, that's what's called a, an untrue limiting assumption lived as if it's true from the great work of Nancy Klein, K-L-I-N-E, who did Time to Think, and his, her latest book is coming out, I think, today, um, which is the promise, the promise that you won't interrupt people. And I think too many CEOs interrupt people. They do their thinking for them. And if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Um, but the second great life hack question comes from um, uh, Oscar Trimboli, who's a uh, a friend in Australia who does deep listening, um, that uh, while 52% of our day is listening, uh, only 2% of us have been trained in it. And so you need to be trained in, in listening. Uh, and of the five levels of listening that he talks about, level four is listening to the unsaid. So a great question is, what is it you haven't said or told me yet, which allows them to save face because they were perhaps intending to tell you at some stage but what is it you haven't told me yet is fascinating because then something bubbles up that really is crucial but but you didn't ask them mm. uh, and i i think those are, are two helpful ones yeah what about team what, what, what have you found makes a really great team so you've from, from leader to team um I mean, I, th I guess on a practical level, my feeling is, you know, clear and genuine, like buy into shared objectives, basically, right? So a clear sense that, you know, you have an area of responsibility, or each individual person or each individual team has a an area of responsibility, and they really understand how that connects to your overall goals and missions. And I think our experience certainly has been that, you know, chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And you know, that requires a team which is truly connected all the way down, as it were, to the, low, to, you know, to the sort of leaves of the organizational tree. Yeah? yeah. Because otherwise what happens is someone sort of somewhere along the way 
thinks why am I doing all this kind of organizational objective stuff I know what I need to do when I wake up I need to switch on my computer I need to answer my emails etc um you know and I you know I'll put in something in terms of my objectives but I'm not really going to be paying attention I'm not really going to be living that and most organizations I suspect don't have the discipline to really kind of educate people and to bring them along and I think that that's something we've struggled with if I'm honest I think most organizations struggle with it on one level or another but I think that um that is the a really inspiring team is one where everyone in the organization can tell you why they're doing what they're doing yeah and of course you've alluded to something now where in this virtual world for the next year or two or maybe it's just going to be the way it's going to be um how have you overcome the challenges of a virtual team and people joining you who, who maybe haven't messed the rest of the team because you don't have an office, you're working from home? How do you uh, get the best out of virtual team working? Um, so I think for organizations like ours, you know, not everyone has necessarily had any as, as easy a time as, of it as we have, but um, I think that we haven't seen that specifically be more of a problem i think there's a couple of things we have done in order to maximize success like one is we've come up with clearer conventions organizationally on how we document things because i think you know communications have to be a bit more structured you know you you can't rely so much on radio to radio to, um, you you can't what's cooler type conversations right to spread information you have to have that a bit more structured and in particular it requires more things to be written down i think in general um and we've we have actually gone through a process of refreshing our values as a company because we think that remote working requires a slightly different set of company values from the ones that you can get away with maybe if you are all physically co-located so for example we've added um we've added two that i guess could have been values previously we've refreshed others as well but um but in particular one of them is proactivity um so you know, not just, don't just sort of plan, but actually just get on with it. Um, and the second one is uh, communicativeness, right? Or I think we actually call it, um, the, the noun we use is like different, but basically we think that communication itself and making it easy to both to, um, uh, both being voluble in how you speak, right? On how you communicate, but also being easy to make it easy excuse me, making it easy for other people to um, speak to you. Yes. Right. Being a good listener. I think that sort of ties in with what you're saying about um, Oscar and Nancy. Yeah. That's Brilliant. really important. <clears throat> and, and you mentioned when we talked about two leaders that you've admired their qualities. Uh, you had Dan and you had Julia, your wife. So uh, which one do you want to talk about first? Well, I think it's easy to talk about Julia. I mean, <laughs> Julia is a tremendously inspiring leader. I really, I'm very inspired by how different she is from me. Um, I think she has a team that would walk through. What would she do? Uh, what's her What's her job? What's her company called? Um, so she's a CEO of a company called Legal, um, and they are a business operating system for law firms, legl. Um, uh, dot com, and they basically provide software to do all of the things that law firms need to do, which is not actually fee generating work. So, you know, making sure they, their clients can pay them and making sure they can onboard new clients and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so she has a team of about 20 at the moment, all that's growing very, very fast. And um, that business um, 
is run in a much more disciplined way uh, and a much more integrated and agile way than I think we've been able to build within my organization, which I think is hugely impressive from a leadership style perspective. Um, I think it's much more metricized. You know, I'm very, very impressed with the level of quantitative detail that, um, you know, she's able to run the business of, like partly that reflects quicker sales cycles in her world for various reasons, you know, so it's actually the, the deal times are just shorter. And so it's just more meaningful to look at week on week data as opposed to, you know, month on month or quarter on quarter data. Um, but I think that she has built a really tremendously inspiring team and a tremendously inspired team in an industry which is, you know, pretty much a byword for, um, you know, being slow and inefficient and out of touch, you know, which yeah. is really, really impressive. Right. Um, well, I think we're going to have we, we're going to have to get her on the series. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> let's get her on the series. Okay. Um, and then, what about Dan? Tell us who Dan is. So Dan Garrett, he's the CEO of a company called Farewell. Um, and you know, if you think of something more depressing than law, potentially more depressing than law, uh, their mission. I'm I'm probably butchering it, so to speak, but um, their mission is to um, digitize death basically to bring death into the, the 21st century, to make it possible for people to write and update wills, to make it possible for people to not get, you know, um, predated on when they're in the position of wanting to organize a funeral for a loved one, et cetera. And um, he's built a really incredibly um, positive company, even in an industry that you at best would associate with being kind of plush leather and at worst would associate with grief and tears and they've built a company which has a very positive mission has an incredibly strong product and he's done that in a way which I am hugely admiring of because I feel that he has managed to build a system where you know the strategy of the company and the operations of the company um sort of fit together in a way that I personally have never managed to I've, I've always I think struggled to completely divorce the strategy from from operations in a way that that um, enables me to be uh, more focused on strategy. I think I still have a you know too much focus in my day to day on on what's actually happening operationally and tactically. Yeah. And I'm very very impressed by the discipline that he's done that with, and I'm very impressed by the way he's gone about that systematically and really starting from very very systematic and disciplined approach to hiring in particular and that's like his like superpower basically and he's used that to build an organization and that's amazing uh, and could someone go online now and type in farewell.com or something that farewell farewell f-a-r-e-w-e-l-l uh, do you know i'm not sure if it's i think it's f-a-r-e double w-i-l-l yeah i think um oh far uh, farewell yeah 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 f-a-r-e W-I-L-L. Yeah, good. Okay, well, um, that, that sounds like exceptionally good. Let's go on to, we, we've, we've touched on it briefly, uh, COVID and uh, impact on you personally and your family, uh, decisions you made about where you live, things like that. Um, and uh, how do you think things are going to be in the future? We'll talk about that perhaps next, but how's COVID impacted you, your family, your business? So I think we've been... Um... Well, let's talk about personal stuff. So I think from a personal point of view, we've been lucky. Um, we haven't had anyone close to us who's been severely impacted um, by the disease itself. Um, we've, I think we felt pretty um, 
pretty cooped up in London though and we decided to up sticks and move a couple of miles down the road to Cambridge and so that's what we've actually done over the last couple of months. So that's been in some ways an opportunity because I think like a lot of companies we've basically drawn down our office presence and I think in particular with the current situation you know we're recording this in sort of late October right um, it doesn't feel like the thing that we want to be expert at as a company or as an HR organization even within a company is uh, managing and interpreting the constantly changing stream of advice and updates from the government it feels like the easiest thing for us to do is to say we are a minimal office company for the foreseeable future probably through the end of 2021 at least um, that means that we will continue to spend time in person together health advice permitting for things that are really crucial for things that can't be done over the phone um, or can't be done on zoom but otherwise we'll focus on building a really great remote collaboration experience um, and we'll leverage whatever tools are out there, whatever, um, you know, whether that be, you know, we've experimented with and actually chose not to adopt virtual reality, for example, for various different reasons. Um, but there's some really sort of interesting, innovative stuff coming up the curve in terms of uh, tools to make collaboration easier, but, you know, remote whiteboarding, for example, I think that's the single biggest um, friction point that we had post office abandonment in March was you know people really missed whiteboards um, and so we've adopted a solution for example using you know Apple pencils and iPads which is not as good but it's not bad yeah so that's kind of uh, I guess sort of shading into the business side I think for us as a business selling to big businesses COVID really slows things down but it's actually like all these things as opportunities so I think we've really treated it as an opportunity for us to think about how high friction our sales cycle has been. Um, and so some of this is maybe like kind of stop me if I'm verging into kind of, you know, sales jargon, but I guess the received wisdom pre COVID was a bit like, look, nobody likes the fact that selling software involves, you know, multiple business class flights all over the world and, you know, lots of meetings and lots of, you know, professional services and lots of um, stakeholder management and hugely high price tags and, you know, potentially physical deployments onto physical services on servers on premise and so on and so forth, you know, all of which are big frictions, but pre-COVID at least those things were possible. And so it felt a little bit that doing those things was acceptable from a kind of like we just, you know, that's the price of the, that's how you play the game. Right. But I think COVID, I think, has opened our eyes to the idea that really there is a better world there that's possible where sales is less high friction, um, that um, software can be configured rather than having to be customized, um, that sales can be done over the phone or over Zoom, that software can be deployed to the cloud. Um, that price points can come down because there's less manual work going into it and because you can get actual sales to move faster. And I think that's been really inspiring for us because I certainly was, I think, in this mode where, you know, we were making it work, right? We were being successful as an enterprise sales company. Um, but I think that COVID has really opened our eyes to the fact that it's because it's made a, you know, as it were, a necessity of a virtue, right? It's... Um, it's actually enabled us to make big changes that I think we might, because we're venture backed and because we have demanding investors, we might not have had the, we might not have felt we had the wiggle room to really change those quite fundamental things about our business. You know, we would have just been, you know, pushing harder, you know, on the treadmill, so to speak, um, rather than really thinking like, is, is the most efficient way of doing this to like just run faster. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Makes complete sense. And what's your predictions from all that you read and seeing your own 
entrepreneurial startup business in the tech world. Uh, how do you think we're going to be living 2021, 2022, 2023? What's, what's, has the, the way leaders are going to lead, teams are going to work, offices, that kind of stuff? What's your prediction? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in any of it. I think there are genuinely really interesting challenges for real estate, right? I think that if I was in the office business at the moment, right, I wouldn't just be thinking, right, 2021 is going to be a tough year, but 2022, it's going to be all guns blazing. I'd actually be thinking something more like, well, 2021, I think there's some opportunities for us to manage, you know, a crisis situation in a way that maybe is a down year, but like 2022 is going to, I don't think it's going to snap back. I don't think that people are, I think the, the, the pandemic has broken people's love affair with the office. I think all sorts of jobs that people thought were impossible to do remotely, they now realize are trivial to do remotely. Um, I think people's quality of life, broadly speaking, you know, one of the things we've done is a lot of, um, you know, asking people questions, right? A lot of asking our staff questions about what they prefer. And I would say that 80% of people are probably, uh, you know, a sizable degree happier now that they've abandoned their commute. We tend to find that 10 to 20% of people absolutely hate missing, they really, really hate working from home. I think in many people's cases, that's to do with uh, the social life the office gives them. Uh, one person did actually say that they missed their commute because that they did self-improving things on their commute, which I have to say, I did find a little bit difficult to understand because I was like, look, you can always go and stand in your bathtub or whatever with like, you know, an iPad and, you know, kind of some sort of get someone to put BO in your face that way if you want to recreate the sort of <laughs> underground experience. Um, you know, it's not, no one's stopping you exactly. Uh, so I think the interesting thing for me is going to be how do, how does, how does the process of buying, and this is coming back to our industry, right, where we have big banks that require lots of people to make decisions about what they're going to buy from whom, and what, how do you establish that trust that's necessary for a relationship where someone's going to spend seven, eight, sometimes more figures with you um, over the course of a relationship, how do you really kind of establish that trust? Mm. And I think what we've seen so far is that it's been very difficult for new entrants to break into those types of situations. Like in general, what's happening is people that are already in the door are getting kind of repeat orders or they're getting additional business from people because they're just, they're there already, they're onboarded, there's like a level of trust, et cetera. I think what we're probably going to see, if I'm honest, is you're going to see companies that have realized the same as us, that actually the way to compete in that market is to reduce the friction and minimize the risk by providing earlier and more frequent and more objective proof points, right, to customers that what they're doing really solves the problem, as opposed to leaning on the quality of relationship and the sort of, you know, the quality of the salesperson suit, right, as the sort of um, the thing that tips the balance of the deal. Yeah. Um, and I think customers are going to demand that because um, if they can see objectively that the problem that they have will be solved by a vendor, then that's going to be an easy decision for them to make, even if they have an incumbent who they sort of trust on the one hand, but they don't actually like see the proof that they can really solve their problem. Very good. And, and the book by um, uh, Captain uh, David Marquet, American submarine commander of... Uh, the Santa Fe, um, he's going to be coming on the series. I'm looking forward to him because he's written two good books, uh, Turn the Ship Around and 
leadership is language. And leadership is language is the one that's really been profound for many CEOs because he gave some live examples, but he talked about the fact that you as CEO want decision-making as low as you can in your organization, but you are the decision evaluator and you have these proof points at a review period, monthly, three monthly. So they, they, they make a decision and they get on with it, but they, they come to you for an evaluation at a three month point. So let's review, is this still relevant? Because people are now saying they haven't got three to five year strategies. They've got three to five week strategies, three to five month strategies because everything's moving so fast and the tempo and they have to adjust. So by having these review points, they can, let's evaluate it. You made the decision, let's evaluate it. I'm s- stepping back and looking strategically. Do you, is it what's working? What, what would make it even better? How can we tweak and slightly adjust the direction? But it doesn't mean that you're committed. And, and he uses the example of a super tanker that went into the eye of a hurricane and all 35 members of the super tanker died because the captain had committed himself and had no review points. And even though the weather was getting worse and the ship was being thrown around, oh no, let's just keep going. And this is what you have to have, this this proof point, which I think you made. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think also people have been educated as individuals, as consumers, right, to expect that they have flexibility over the services they buy. And so the idea that, you know, as an individual working at JP Morgan, I can, you know, change my network provider or whatever it is. But as someone who buys for JP Morgan with like vastly greater purchasing power, right, I'm not able to like shop around effectively. Like it, it People, people are frustrated by that. Yeah, so true. David, we're coming to the end. Uh, final question, really. Um, if you were to recommend a good book that you've enjoyed reading, which has helped you as a leader or might help other people who are reading it, what, what would be your recommendation? Do you know, I've got a kind of off the wall recommendation, which I hope is uh, thought provoking to some. And if it's not, then please, um, uh, you know, feel free to discard after a couple of pages. But I think one of the books that's really helped me change my perspective um, systematically is a science fiction book actually by a guy called China Mayville, um, which is China as in the country. And then I think it's M-I-E-V-I-L-L-E. And it's called The City and the City. And it's a very unusual sci-fi book in that um, it actually doesn't have anything in it which there's no law of the universe or law of physics or even um of there's nothing that's not possible with today's technology within the book at all um although there's a plot point that sort of revolves around this anyway i don't want to spoil too much um but it's a book about a it's a book about two countries that occupy the same physical space and um so if you can imagine they actually have the same streets but the citizens and the the people living in them are incomplete, they, they aren't allowed to interact in any way. And um, they occupy completely different conceptual universes. And what I thought was so interesting about it and what really helped me, I guess, um, is that, first of all, I think it really led me to re-examine um, my own feelings about things like discrimination and just about inequality, right? Because I was living in New York when I read it and I remember thinking like, wow, it's actually like surprisingly similar to the experience of living in New York as like an upper middle class white guy and you you have this whole ecosystem of people around you who are just not relevant to your life. You know, like you just, they are invisible to you, right? In a practical sense, even though you have to physically move around them, you know, in the street, they're, they're not, they're not doing, you know, they're not connected with your existence, you know, as a professional who's, you know, buying, selling shares and whatever it is. 
And the second thing was, I think it really forced me to challenge um, my ideas about like preconceptions and about like how malleable our prejudices are and how and how fixed they are, right? And how easy it is for those to be manipulated and our preconceptions. And I think that one of the pieces of advice that I would give to my other self is very much, you know, don't assume that the things that the problems you think have been solved by prospects or customers have in fact been solved, right? Don't, you know, don't sort of answer your own questions. Um, don't be hemmed in by your prejudices, like really ask the questions and like really listen to the answers and, you know, don't feel that the first person you've asked necessarily knows the truth either. Go and get a diversity and really kind of like systematically sort through this stuff and be, be open-minded and be curious about it. And this is a, this book is all about how it's possible to mold people in a way that even though they are physically in the same space, they don't recognize each other as like even existing. Right. And so it's a really extreme example of how prejudices can be embedded, embedded and how preconceptions can be embedded in, in a brain. And it's totally, I mean, totally rings true, basically. Yeah. So that's my, that's my like, it's actually a very, it's a murder mystery. It's a really fun read, but it's like one of the most profound books that I've ever read about anything in a funny way. So uh, take of that what you will. I don't necessarily know if I'll get you reading it, Jonathan, but you like, um, no, maybe, will, someone will, maybe someone that's reading these things, this will, we'll have a go. Definitely read it. I hope they have an audio version as well. That would really help me. But I'm look, sure they do. I'm sure they do. Dave Buxton, thank you very much indeed. See of Arachnus. Fascinating, stimulating, thought-provoking session. Much appreciated. And every uh, success to you and your team in, in making a huge difference in, in that tech world um, for the frictionless experience in this, in this risky world that we live in. David, thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for having me and all, all the success to you too. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.